This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Far-reaching reforms of U.S. health care and flood insurance law continue to stir controversy among voters, policymakers, and other industry stakeholders. Against this backdrop, Knowledge at Wharton recently talked with two Wharton professors who are recognized experts on the complexities of the insurance industry, Howard C. Kunruther and Mark V. Pauley, co-authors of a 2013 book titled Insurance and Behavioral Economics, Improving Decisions in the Most Misunderstood Industry. There are two of us here speaking with Howard and Mark. Alan, why don't you ask the first question? In the subtitle of your book, Insurance and Behavioral Economics, you call the insurance industry the most misunderstood industry. Broadly speaking, how and why is insurance so widely misunderstood, at least in the United States? I think that people view insurance as an investment rather than as a protective activity. That is one of the basic misunderstandings. And as a result, if they haven't collected on their policy, claims on their policy, they will cancel it because they feel that in some sense it wasn't a good deal. Uh, Rather than somehow responding like the best return on a policy is no return at all. Uh, That's one aspect. And the other feature is that on the very low probability events, which is where insurance is most valuable, they say it's not going to happen to me. I don't have to worry about it. I won't protect myself. Mark, would you care to comment? Well, I think most transactions that we have, so if I go out and buy a clothes dryer, I put down my money and in a few days the clothes dryer shows up at my house and it's what I ordered and that's that. Insurance is different. You put up your money in the first instance and if you're lucky, you get a cheesy piece of plastic that indicates uh, you've got insurance coverage. But uh, what you're going to get uh, is determined later by whatever happens and it's easy for people to – forget the details of what they agreed to when they put down their money uh, once the bad event happens and think that they should be entitled to uh, 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 things that may not have been covered in the contract. So it's not the only example where people sign long-term contracts, but it's it's a good example and it's actually worse than most long-term contracts because the whole intrinsic idea is that uncertainty and unpredictability will intervene and that makes it easy for people to uh, be confused about whether they made a smart decision in the first instance, the nature of insurance, of course, is that in a sense, everybody who buys insurance makes a dumb decision. Either you paid your premium and you didn't suffer a loss. Now, we claim the best return from insurance is no return at all, but still, sometimes I look at it that way. Or you you did pay your insurance, but you suffered a loss and you wish you hadn't because it didn't cover everything. And either way, people tend to be dissatisfied. Insurers also and sometimes misunderstand their business, uh, particularly in dealing with catastrophic events. And and regulators of insurers often misunderstand insurance as well because like the rest of us, they want it to um, do everything good in the world. But sometimes that's not always possible. Uh, let me ask you who the audience for this book is and, and what if you could choose one major impact it could have on this audience, what would that be? Howard? Uh, I think the, the major audience, I think, is uh, certainly people 
who have an interest in what insurance can do. So a general consumer, we've tried to write this book in such a way that it is understandable. We try to keep out the technical details uh, in the text and write with a set of stories and anecdotes to at least let people know uh, some of the challenges one faces. It obviously should be of interest to insurers. We hope it will be of interest to insurers. As Mark indicated, insurers make similar decisions to uh, what consumers do. Uh, They often don't insure events uh, because of the fact that they feel somehow uh, the risk is too high. Uh, But on the other hand, they actually will not not take into account a risk when they feel it won't happen to them. And terrorism is a good example that we can talk about. I think we we imagine, and I think it's true, that there are a fair number of people who, who, like us, are fascinated by insurance or are very interested in it. We think, on the one hand, this will help to explain to sort of typical intelligent layperson consumer why insurance works the way it does, which is often hard for people to understand. Uh, And uh, and we think it it may help them understand uh, public policy toward insurance and uh, what would be better or worse public policy making them better citizens uh, with regard to this uh, particularly and crucially important dimension of public policy as well as better consumers. Uh, so that, that, that audience we ha- imagine, and as the world gets more and more uncertain, insurance plays a larger and larger role. It's much, much more important, I think, for people to understand the strengths and limits of insurance. Um, Howard, how do you think uh, these misunderstandings have played out specifically in the case with uh, various stakeholders, customers, insurance companies, government, etc., with respect to the Affordable Care Act and the Flood Insurance Reform Act. Well, let me talk about the Flood Insurance Reform Act of uh, and then Mark, I know, will want to talk about affordability uh, for the Affordability Care Act, uh, and those do form the centerpiece of our book, as you know, with a lot of other insurance policies a part of it. I think the Flood Insurance Reform Act is a really interesting example of where Congress made a decision to require insurance premiums to reflect risk on second homes in hazard-prone areas, as well as those homes that are the subject to repetitive flooding. And the reason that Congress decided to do that was that flood insurance is a national program. It's a federal program. The program was in debt because of events like Hurricane Katrina. And there was a feeling by a number of congressional uh, people on both sides of the aisle uh, that it was important to try to sort of deal with insurance the way it should be dealt with, which is have risk-based premiums. They also provided for a study that is going to take place beginning in January. It's been somewhat delayed on affordability and the issues of affordability and what would happen. Now, what has really occurred uh, since Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy occurred in October 2012. The Flood Insurance Reform Act was passed in July 2012. If the reverse had happened, uh, Sandy had occurred in July, it's highly doubtful that this piece of legislation would have been passed because there would have been all this concern with respect to people having to pay much higher premiums than they had in the past. That's what basically would happen. FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, is drawing new maps. This requires, in many cases, for premiums to be much higher. And there's been a great concern by the public as to why I'm paying a higher premium. Some of that obviously understood. They had a lower premium and now it's being raised because of the fact that it's now being, the maps are being corrected. But there's also a very, very strong uh, backlash on this piece of legislation uh, because of the fact that 
that there are low-income people in this area, and they say we can't afford that. And we can get into that perhaps later on, but let me stop here just to say there is a misunderstanding from the vantage point of people saying, why am I paying such a high premium? And that is because they have a high risk. And they said, well, we should have known that. And of course, they didn't know it because the premiums were highly subsidized beforehand. Well, for health insurance, it's a little different. Uh, Actually, one of the points of our book is that people aren't always confused about insurance. In fact, many insurance markets work pretty well. Most people have collision coverage on their car and fire insurance on their house and do sensible things. And about 84% of the population had health insurance. So compared to, say, uh, flood insurance, where the proportion was much lower buying, it's actually a less severe problem. But uh, in, in terms of proportion, but in terms of the harm done to people who don't have health insurance, it's pretty large at least. Uh, and, uh, and, and there were uh, two reasons why people didn't buy health insurance. The obvious one is uh, I can't afford it. I'm a, low, uh, I'm a poor person or I'm a low middle income person and given what premiums are, um, I just can't cut, cut that kind of money out of my budget to pay for health insurance. And Obamacare is going to um, directly deal with that population and I think rather well. But the other set of people who didn't buy health insurance, the typical poster child here is the young immortal, the person who says, I'm a young 30-year-old person. I make $50,000 a year. Uh, what affordability means is not a technical term, but $3,000 or so for a premium is not outrageous. But I just don't think it'll happen to me. I, I just I haven't seen a doctor in years. That may be a reason why it will happen to me, but I don't think about it that way. Uh, and I, uh, I don't like being forced uh, to buy insurance and, and uh, as what's actually part of the law, not only being forced to buy insurance, but forced to pay premiums, which are much higher than what I would ever expect to collect. So there's good news and bad news about health reform. One is that it does direct subsidies to the people who need them the most, the low low income and lower middle income people. But the other part is um, that it has caused uh, consternation in the part of the population that is relatively low risk and, and, and kind of doesn't see that this is their most pressing need. So, Mark, our misunderstandings about insurance and, and sort of the, the ignorance about the application of behavioral economics, are, are they especially uh, common in the U.S. because of the special characteristics of, of our insurance market or because of government, uh, because of consumer dislike of government-mandated programs? Or Well, for health insurance, of course, we – it's voluntary here still or, or will be until January 1st. Then there will be a mandate, but the penalty is only a slap on the wrist. In most other countries, consumers can't make the mistake of not buying health insurance because they're not allowed to. So in that sense, it's different. On the other hand, what we emphasize in the book is that the, the really hard – cases are these low probability, high consequence events. The occasional flood, which is disaster, or for an individual with health insurance, for the young person, they don't get sick very often. Uh, but when they do, it, uh, it can be a disaster. And people, uh, I think, around the world have a hard time understanding uh, why they should have insurance against those kind of events or how they should look at it when they do buy it, because almost by definition, most of the time, you will have wasted your premium. So, so uh, I think there's a, a – I think misunderstanding here is pretty global, um, although uh, because we allow a little bit more volunteer volunt- – uh, allow insurers to be more voluntary in the U.S., uh, perhaps we hear about it a little more 
in terms of consumer mistakes. Other countries um, don't let people make mistakes, although they may also cause them to do things that they really aren't sensible for them to do. So young people probably get, although they don't get sick often, they get sick more often than people experience floods. <laughs> I'm guessing, correct? <laughs> I so, would the, think so. so the whole, the whole. Well, it depends on you where you know. live. <laughs> well, yeah. But at least the, the big ones that we hear about. Yeah. So I mean, it's just such an interesting problem for you to have because flood insurance—it's such a unique animal because of of that very low probability but high risk characteristic. And I'm wondering why you think, ever, why you would ever think consumers are going to change. Um, their approach to this kind of, of protection? Well, I think that's a, a very important point with respect to the voluntary purchase of insurance. And as, as we note in the book and Mark indicated, uh, a lot of people do not purchase flood insurance because they say it's not going to happen to me uh, and they really don't think about this low probability event. So from that vantage point, I think you, you have a real major problem with respect to how that insurance has to be packaged. There are two things I think that are, are normally done to deal with that. One is that it's required as a condition for a mortgage. And in the case of flood insurance, uh, that actually happened after the bill which was passed in 1968 revealed that so few people had actually purchased it. They changed in 1972 to require that any person who was living in a flood-prone area and where flood insurance was available and they had a federally insured mortgage had to buy it. So the requirements are a very important part of this. The other part that I think really makes this very challenging is what I referred to earlier on the issue of the affordability, that it becomes extremely hard for people to somehow say, uh, I really... Uh, have to have this insurance when it's so expensive. And this law of requiring flood insurance was never very well enforced and has not been well enforced today. So there are an awful lot of people who still don't have flood insurance, even if they're required to have it. And many people who then were required to take it after a disaster to get some type of disaster relief cancel a policy a few years later, even though they were required to have it. So we have a real challenge here in terms of how to deal with this. Uh, Mark, I'd like to ask you, with respect to health insurance reform, do you think the framers of the uh, ACA had uh, really looked at the challenges of health care reform through the lens of behavioral economics? I mean, as economists who specialize in this, you, you are so used to thinking of it that way, but are there people who make policies sometimes who just don't, don't get it? Well, we're, we're trying. I don't think it's particularly true with respect to health insurance. I think policymakers in general have a hard time dealing with insurance because the simplest thing, if you observe something that looks like a mistake, is just to pass a law to make people do it. But as Howard just pointed out, in the case of the regulation about flood insurance, it then often becomes very hard to enforce the regulation or very hard to get people to abide by it. And I, uh, I've already hinted I think the same thing's going to happen with the mandate to buy health insurance because it's relatively modest and because people will claim that they can't afford it. That's why they're not doing it, despite what the law says. Uh, it makes it hard to, to, uh, in, it, to deal with uh, insurance just by wielding a stick. And so behavioral economics basically says let's look at a much broader set of, 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 uh, of restructuring that can make insurance attractive, 
and as well as something your mother told you you should do, but you just haven't got around to it, which is how most of us look mm -hmm. at it. Yeah. Let me add a, a point to what Mark said, because I think that the regulatory community is an important component to this as well, in the sense that they are very concerned with these equity issues, and often they will sort of say, uh, we can't charge the premium that reflects risk because it would really hurt a certain group. And this has been done with uh, auto insurance, in fact, and other insurance besides the catastrophic risk. But it certainly has been done in the case of both health insurance and flood insurance. And what we would say uh, is that this creates the misunderstanding on the part of individuals because they think their premium is low because their risk is low. They don't realize that they're being necessarily subsidized. That's particularly true in the, in the case of floods, which is one of the reasons why we have this problem today. Our response to that is that we have really two very basic principles. One that we've already talked about, that premiums reflect risk. But the second principle is dealing with equity and affordability. And our principle basically says that if you're going to deal with equity and affordability, don't do it through an insurance premium. Do it through some other means like a voucher. Let people know what the risk is. And then if you feel you have to support them or subsidize them, do it with a voucher like a food stamp is done for food. But has, this has to be restricted to only t buying insurance, not a voucher that they could go to, to uh, purchase anything they would like to do with it. So if there is, in fact, this level of distrust between consumers and insurers. Um, you've mentioned some things that, that could, could help with that, but I think one of the ideas that came, that came up either in the book or something I read about it was uh, if insurers could offer multi-year policies right. so that, you know, the, they, they diversify the risk over years and the consumers get stable, get a sense of stable prices. Are those the kind of things, those sort of nuts and bolts suggestions that that you feel would make a difference? Are there others like this? Is that a possible? Could this actually happen? Well, that's our third principle. I didn't mention okay. it, but since oh, you right. did, let me say we really believe in multi-year uh, policies for just the reasons you stated, uh, partly because people n would uh, cancel their policies if uh, they had that option, and often uh, they, they do just that. Uh, and in the case of the flood program, we really recommend that it be tied to the property, not to the individual, so that if they, the property is sold, it could be actually uh, dealt with in a way that would be uh, appropriate by the next a homeowner, they would they continue that. Uh, I mean, Mark, on, on the health, health insurance, uh, there are examples actually of, of long-term policies. Yeah. So one of the uh, one of the issues uh, is that, um, uh, uh, as as you could imagine, uh, people are concerned about losing their health insurance if they contract a chronic condition, and it actually is little known, uh, but actually was true that in the individual insurance market, if you bought a policy when you were healthy. Uh, like you should, uh, and you pay your premiums on time, the insurer was uh, not allowed to, and uh, actually contracts even before there was a rule said, we promise not to single you out for premium increases if you get uh, a chronic condition. Now, it's a big country and there are sleazy companies in it, and some of them did do that, but that kind of provision called guaranteed renewability at class average rates did provide people multi-period uh, protection. So there are ways of doing that other than the method which is now in the law, which is much more of a brute force method of saying, uh, well, you have to have insurance every year, so you can never not have multi-period protection. But again, the enforceability uh, of that, uh, to my mind, is very much in doubt. Uh, Mark, the uh, 
Debate about the health care reform has been highly polarized between people who think it's just absolutely going down the wrong street and then a few devout loyalists who say this is the greatest thing and it can be tweaked to be fixed. If you, had to, if you were the czar of the health care industry, what would, what would you have designed and how would you, could you, can we fix this or should it just be thrown out and we'd be done given all these challenges that even you... Well, uh, part of the problem is that the political process doesn't like to admit mistakes. And so if you uh, – because of the way the legislation was passed at the last minute, uh, they should have written provisions into it saying we're going to change this as we go along and learn things because as it turned out, that's actually what they ended up doing. But just as in medicine, doctors have to pretend that they know what they're doing. Apparently, politicians have to do the same. Economists don't have to do that. Uh, if, if it was up to me, I would have focused on what I've already hinted at uh, as I think the most important benefit of the law of making sure that you get decent insurance to low-income people and a lot of the other regulatory paraphernalia that's been added onto it, in particular the regulation of insurance premiums requiring them to be high for low risks and, thing, and young people, um, uh, that could have been put on the back burner for a while until you uh, could see whether you're able to succeed in covering the bulk of the low-income uninsured and then we could kind of mop up the stragglers. I mean, there are a few high-income people who don't have health insurance more than you would think, like millions, uh, but we can pick up those evil Knievels of health insurance later, I think, but uh, with, without necessarily adding all this uh, consternation that was added because of the ponderous regulatory apparatus that was constructed. Howard, perhaps you'd like to talk about what changes you might make in the flood reform, uh, flood insurance reform. Well, I think the Flood Re uh, Insurance Reform Act, as it, as it was passed in July, was a major step forward in terms of uh, putting on the table that premiums had to reflect risk. It's the first time, certainly in the property area, that that has ever been done by Congress. So that was a very positive step. What I think we would have done a bit differently is that we would have tried uh, – I would have suggested that vouchers be instituted initially for, for everyone whose premiums might have gone up – Low-income people certainly uh, uh, would need a voucher. There was a provision of having the rates increase gradually, and, on, and that's uh, over a five-year period. Uh, but what it did was it really discouraged people from taking steps to mitigate their homes and adapt their homes initially because the premiums would be highly subsidized for a period of time. And so what we would, what I would have liked to have seen is the linkage of the insurance premium with the idea that if someone actually put decided that they really wanted their house to avoid the next flood, and they recognized that by doing that, they would get a very substantial premium discount, which is what they would get, uh, then this would have been a way to actually encourage that. If the premiums are only going up gradually for the next five years, you find that people really would not get the benefits that they deserve for mitigating because the premiums would be too low. So give them a voucher rather than necessarily ramp it up. The challenge I think we face today, and we should should put this on the table right now is that the possibility is that this law is, is going to be modified significantly because of all the concerns that people have with their premiums and there are new legislation in, introduced in Congress as we speak to actually change that, including one by Representative Waters who was part of the Bigot Waters Act who damn feels maybe this act is not an appropriate one because her constituencies are now complaining about the fact that 
that the premiums are too high. So we have got to deal with this affordability issue as quickly as we can in order to be able to address that issue. Mark, you referred earlier to the fact that insurance is going to be playing an increasingly large role in the world. Is that because of the global marketplace we have, or is it because negative events like viruses and terrorism are so much more widespread these days? Yeah, well, so I think, uh, as usual, it's a number of things. One is the global marketplace, and we now uh, potentially can suffer a loss for something that happens in Bangladesh, whereas, uh, you know, when I only collected stamps, it didn't matter what happened there. Uh, the other, though, is, and this is particularly true for healthcare, but it's true in general, the consequence, the financial consequences of losses are now much bigger than they used to be. So things that were kind of de minimis, uh, you didn't have to insure them because it didn't matter that much, now it can take a bigger bite out of your capital, uh, and that's going to uh, make a difference. And, uh, and I guess the third is just to appeal to, I think, what's obvious, that it's a much more uncertain world, whether we're talking about uh, future climate or whether we're talking about future politics or future terrorism threats, all of which mean that uh, it seems much riskier now than it used to be. And, 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 uh, and as people's real incomes rise, and they're still rising, um, contrary to some extent to economic theory, but it's still kind of plausible, they seem to want to be protected, not just take their lumps, uh, particularly as the lumps get bigger anyway relative to their income. So I think all of those are reasons why we think uh, insurance's role in the uh, not only the national economy but in the global economy can do nothing but increase in importance, and so it's really important to get it right. Well, from the vantage point of what we've seen, and this really follows on with what Mark just said, is we really are in a new era of catastrophes. We are really now uh, facing larger losses with respect to uh, uh, certainly natural hazards. Climate change is exacerbating that problem. The health areas, as Mark pointed out, there are now major problems, and your notion of pandemics is certainly something. So we face, a, I think, a challenge in this industry because the insurers are increasingly saying we're not sure we can insure this event. And terrorism, as an example, I think really highlights that point. It also highlights some of the, the behavioral aspects we were talking about earlier. Prior to 9-11, the insurance industry did not exclude terrorism from coverage. They didn't pay attention to, cover, uh, to terrorism. They effectively didn't charge anything for that coverage on commercial policies and homeowners policies. Uh, we were a little surprised to find that out, and we only found that out after 9-11. We're not aware of it beforehand. Um, by uh, thinking there was the 1993 abortive uh, uh, World Trade Center bombing, but that did some damage, and Oklahoma City. So there were events they should have paid attention. But the point that really struck us was that after 9-11, they felt this was an uninsurable risk. And as a result, we, we, Congress was forced to pass, and maybe appropriately so for, law, for large losses, the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act. So what I think we're seeing now is a whole set of questions that are being asked. What's the role of government? What's the role of the private sector? And I think the private sector is saying more and more, we're not sure we can really put insurance on the table in the way we have before. And if you're not going to let us charge premiums that reflect risk, we're going to be even more concerned about doing that. So that's, I think, the challenge we face in this country today, let alone all of the other problems that Mark alluded to in the global environment. One other uh, aspect of health reform that I think could have been done better is 
to deal with high-risk people, not by raising the premiums of low-risk people and trying to persuade them to make that transfer, uh, but instead, presumably the reason we care about high-risk people is because we all care about helping out high-risk people. It should be funded by general federal tax revenues, not by uh, uh, charging an extra premium on insurance purchased by just a small fraction of the population who are, of course, going to have to care for me in my old age anyway. So, A great deal of attention has been paid to the functioning of healthcare.gov, the website. Are there any lessons that should have been applied, lessons that you know, to the design or the, the functioning of that site that were not properly applied? For example, did the website assume too much knowledge about risk uh, among consumers, too much knowledge about the complexities involved in, in insurance? Would it have been better to have given people less information right away and rolled out the website uh, more slowly? Well, I think the main problem was that it was designed to be all-encompassing and perfect because the politicians believed they could do this better than individual insurers. And uh, as it turned out, they couldn't. They couldn't even get the software to work. So it never got around to whether consumers would make mistakes or not. They couldn't even log on to make a mistake or make a wise choice. Uh, And so that, I think, was part and parcel of the problem. A simpler version would have been to use the website to allow consumers to see what their options are and then uh, do what had previously been done, find another website for your favorite insurer and go to that insurer and sign up directly there. But there were some good reasons why uh, the government wanted it to be a seamless um, um, uh, experience, but uh, but they just were incapable of, of uh, pulling it off. And I think it it's because in large part, they underestimate the complexity of the most misunderstood industry and how complicated it actually is to get all these pieces to work together. Howard, how can we link the principles of risk-based premiums and equity and affordability so that Congress will preserve the current piece of legislation, which you said is being threatened? We have been – we at the Wharton Risk Center, we have been paying a great deal of attention to trying to make sure that the Flood Insurance Reform Act of 2012 is preserved. And we can see a great concern on the part of uh, – people uh, of Congress, uh, congressional legislators are wanting to change that. What we would like to try to do is to bring these two For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Not only save the government money, but also make the homeowners and consumers and people who are living in these areas feel that they can afford these premiums. The idea is a relatively simple one. We would say basically that if it turns out that a person is going to get a voucher because their premiums are extraordinarily high, either because new maps have been drawn uh, or uh, simply that uh, the subsidized rates are taken away from them. We would basically say, you can have a voucher. We'll also give you a loan to help you make your house safer, elevate your home. But as a condition for a voucher, you have to mitigate. You have to elevate. And so it's a carrot and stick approach that we're putting pushing forward. 
forward. And in by, and this has really been done with a number of people, Carolyn Kuski at Resources for the Future, one Michelle Kerjan, Jeff Joukowsky, number of us have been working on this. And our feeling basically is that in that way, and we have data to, to support this, uh, the government will actually be paying much lower vouchers because their insurance premiums would go way down. And the homeowner would also find that they're better off because they are basically in a position where they have a much safer house and are paying less for it. Well, I think that's an appropriate place to end. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you.